Um, the 9th of December is uh, my wedding anniversary in Angeles, funnily enough. Um, and we've been married. I, uh, there was no specific planning in this regard, but uh, I'm very happy that it occurred this way. We got married in the year 2000. So whenever I have that question asked of me, when did you get married? Well, it's 2012. It's 12 years. Easy. 12 years this year. So uh, we've been married for, uh, for 12... And we got engaged on Anzac Day. So it's just like all the... All the moments, I've just lined them up because I have a terrible memory. But um, we, uh, we had an interesting, I'm not going to go into the details, but we had an interesting few years married, as a lot of people do in their uh, early years of marriage. And uh, one thing that I look back upon in the uh, early years of our marriage is uh, if you had have asked me if I loved my wife in the first year or two of our marriage, I would have said, absolutely, I do. All right? If you'd have asked me back then. But you know what's interesting is the... Uh, the more I grow in my love for my wife, the more I actually realise that probably I loved myself a whole lot more than I loved her in the first few years. Does anyone identify with that kind of thing? That's interesting. What, what I, what I think is really interesting about it is when you're in the middle of that moment, you actually think that your read on the situation is very accurate and in line with the truth. And, and it's just not. And it's almost like someone snuck a pair of glasses on your face that you're looking through and you don't know they're there but they're kind of colouring everything that you're actually seeing. And the older that you get, the more you actually find that either the glasses get cleaned up or uh, you start to see things a bit more clearly and you realise, hang, what I actually thought was true back then wasn't actually true as much as what I thought it was. And so I want to spend a little bit of time this morning, about half of the message, and this is not... I'm going to spend about half the message talking about sin, right? But I'm not talking about it in a, uh, in a condemning, kind of convicting way. That's not the heart that I want to have this morning. I want to, just in more of a teaching way, so that you understand how it works. Because when we get to the bit out of, out of Hebrews that I want to get to today, it'll make so much sense, the good, the good news of it will make so much sense to you. All right? So please don't, this is not kind of a beat up kind of a thing. This is like, I'm just going to give you some dynamics of what's going on when it comes to sin. And um, hopefully... Um, You'll see the good news when we get to it, all right? So the big idea here is it's worse and it's better than what you think. So let's start with uh, the worst bit, all right? Give me the bad news first, all right? One of the things we've talked about at the project here, and I'll give you a brief summary of our understanding of sin. Sin, at the end of the day, is disobedience to God. But we think sin, and we think the Bible says that sin is a parasite, so it can't live without a host, which basically means that we think that sin is a corruption of something that's good. All right? Sin is not some gelatinous globule hanging somewhere in the universe out there and we just have to find it and destroy it. We actually think that the Bible's clear about the fact that sin is a corruption of something good. And the, the good news about the fact that sin is a corruption of something good is it's able to be redeemed. All right? And that's what God does. God actually takes something that's been corrupted and uncorrupts it. Basically, that's not really a word, but he uncorrupts it and he fixes it all up. So it's all new again. And at the end of the day, it's a demonic fly flying around here. <laughs> at the end of the day, there's uh, every single person here who says, yes, I'm a Christian. That's what God's done to you, all right? You were really messy. You're really dirty. And uh, we, we had a pretty nasty message here at the project a while ago about how sin is filthy. And it's like excrement. It's, it's just a repulsive. It's like excrement and vomit. Um, and that is repulsive, parents, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's repulsive, right? And there's a sense in the Bible like that's how bad it is. But here's the thing. God doesn't just discard, does he? He recycles. And what he recycles and he redeems into is something that's actually far grander than what it was before. We've um, looked at the idea that when humans were created, they're interpreters, they're wisdom gatherers, and they're revelation receivers. That's how God's made all of us. So things happen and we interpret, all right? You're interpreting me right now. All right? you, you can't stop interpreting. Everything that you see, you interpret. All right? And like I said before, if you'd have asked me in the early years of our marriage, I would have said, I was loving well. That, that was my interpretation of the situation. My interpretation now is different because I and you and every human on the planet just interprets all of the time. That's what we do. And we want to gather revelation. We want to gather wisdom. All right? Even if it be from YouTube or Facebook. All right? That's just what we do. I mean, my uh, wife's uncle is one of the most hardcore conspiracy theorists that I know. And he's gathering revelation 
and wisdom. He's a Christian guy, but he's gathering wisdom and revelation all the time. Watching ABC News 24, and he's got his little websites that he goes to that are the conspiracy theorist websites. And it's really quite interesting. You have these amazing conversations every time I get together with him. You end up talking about the Ashkenazi Jews and how they're kind of ruling the world, and it's probably got something to do with Israel at the moment. Anyway, it's really quite interesting. Um, but this is the nature of us as, as humans is that we do that. Now, your big problem is if human beings are made to interpret things that they see in their world and interpret themselves, which is, I think, how God made us to act, what happens when things get corrupted is that we actually end up with a corrupted interpretation. Is that fair enough? And so the way that we see things is actually not clear at all. Um, and it's actually quite messy. Now, where this actually affects sin is this actually takes us to a place where we've actually got to decide what sin is, all right? Now, this is, this is not a beat-up thing, right? This is a teaching thing, okay? But you can say, like, um, I've heard some Christians say, you can say sin is just a mistake, all right? Now, I think sometimes sin is a mistake, all right? But if you say that all of sin is a mistake, I think you're downplaying the nature of what sin is, all right? You could go a step further and you could say that sin is actually a conscious act of the will, all right? Some people, there's actually quite a lot of Christian people who say that sin is only a conscious act. That's the only thing that it is. It's a conscious act of disobedience against God. All right? Is everyone happy with the fact that that's, those who are Christians, is it, you're happy with that definition of sin? Because that's pretty good. All right? And to be honest, probably most of my life I would have said sin is a conscious act of disobedience. All right? But here's the problem with that. If you say that sin's a conscious act of disobedience, um, you start to run into troubles when you talk about people that have got addictions or disorders. All right? Because by definition, this is just giving you a little bit of counselling uh, tutorial here for a couple of minutes, by definition a disorder is actually a clump or a group of particular symptoms. All right? So when we say that someone's, and this is separate from what I'm talking about, but when we say that someone's depressed, what we're really saying is that they have a clump or a group of symptoms, all right? And you can actually go through and find out what the specific symptoms are for someone who's, who's depressed, all right? And it would be a bit the same if you wanted to uh, look at someone who had, for example, an addiction to uh, pornography or alcohol. They've actually... You could say that they've got some kind of disorder or an addiction, but what you're actually saying is they have a more concentrated lump than other people have, and it's in a very focused kind of a place. The big problem that you run into is if you say that sin is just a conscious willed act, then the addict of whatever, the shopping addict, the chocolate addict, the porn addict, the alcohol addict, all of a sudden ends up in a place where what they're doing actually isn't sin anymore because they're being compelled by it. They're not actually consciously willing to do the thing that they're doing. Does everyone get what I'm saying? That's, that's your big problem, right? Now, the larger problem with all of this is... Um, that the Bible actually doesn't see sin as only a consciously willed act. It absolutely does see sin that way, but it doesn't only see sin as a consciously willed act. Um, the Bible actually sees sin as a willed act, but probably sometimes as a mistake, but ultimately the Bible sees sin as a condition. Like, you've got a particular condition. You've got a, you've got a particular problem. And so what you've actually got is the corruption or the, uh, the, the ruining of the good things hasn't just resulted in you choosing bad things, but it's actually touched every fibre of what you do. All right? And it doesn't mean that all of you are um, Adolf Hitler. All right? You're going to go out and start slaying people when you get out of church today. All right? It doesn't mean that at all. It just means that there's a little bit of cor corruption that's taken place in everything. Down to the point of, down to the way that you even see life. Do you get what I'm saying? So the way that you see things gets affected. And, and the word that uh, theologians use to describe this is they talk about the noetic effects of sin. All right? And they talk about the fact that people's vision and their interpretation and the way that they see the world is actually impaired by sin. It's not just that their acts can be bad, but they are actually, their sight is actually impaired. This... Uh, guy that I've been, uh, my lecturer for my subject I'm doing at the moment, says this. He says that people are simultaneously brilliant and benighted. 
in a state of intellectual, moral or social darkness. And that's absolutely true. I mean, for all of us, that's probably pretty true. It's certainly true for me. There's times where you can have a real moment of brilliance, but then you just kind of go, there's all these other things that I don't see because my seeing ability has been affected by sin and being tainted by sin. This um, guy, uh, David Powlison, who's my lecturer, actually uh, made this comment in one of the papers of his, one of his essays that I had to read, and I think this is actually uh, brilliant. He uh, says, uh, most sin is invisible to the sinner because it is simply how the sinner works. How the sinner perceives, wants and interprets things. Now when you look at that, those of you who were here a number of weeks ago when I talked about the deceitfulness of sin out of Hebrews chapter 3, I think it was, 3 or 4, that makes sense, doesn't it? Like the truth is that you just don't see everything you need to see and the stuff that you do see, you see in an, in an impaired way. Now, am I saying that you can't know truth? No, I'm not saying that. All right? and I'm not going to get into a philosophical debate about epistemology and all that sort of stuff. Right? But the bottom line is you can know truth. All right? You've just got to have a humility about the way that you know truth because your view of truth is not going to be a crystal clear view of truth. Have I lost anyone yet? You're all okay? All right, I'm going to keep going. What becomes particularly difficult, other than me blowing on the microphone, what becomes particularly difficult is actually convincing someone that they don't see the world clearly when they think they see the world clearly, all right? This is particularly difficult, all right? And wives and husbands will know this for sure, right? Because there's some times in your marriage where you go, really? I mean, Anne just said it to me lots of times. You're just kind of going, what, why are you doing that? I said, well, there's a perfectly good reason why. You sh what are you, that's just really stupid. And it, well, she's, she's nice about it, right? But... This is what I'm hearing, because you always hear something different than what they're saying. She's been really tactful. I'm going, you think I'm an idiot, you know? And it's just verbally you start having a bit of a joust. But, but you know, and then a few days later, I'm just going, oh, stuff. She's right. And sometimes she'll listen to this later and she goes, it's not a few days, it's six months, Peter. All right? Because <laughs> sometimes it is. You know, six months later you go, oh, you know, I should have actually listened because it's in incredibly difficult to persuade someone who thinks they see things clearly that they're not seeing things clearly. And not that, I don't think humans give God a headache, right? I don't think they do. But if something gave God a headache, this would give God a headache. Is everyone with me on that? It just would, right? Because humans, even though we're not, as you get older, you kind of think that you know less than what you did know when you were a teenager. Agreed? But you've you still got this thing going on where you're kind of going, I think I've pretty much squared it away. Um, and for God, he's going, well, listen, I mean, let me teach you a couple of things because you haven't got it squared away. Um, there's a classic clip which I'm going to show you. This is out of uh, Horton Hears a Who. I don't know whether you've seen this uh, video, but there's this really interesting section. I mean, there's, I reckon, about half the movie's got parallels to biblical truth in it, all right? But there's this part in the middle where... Uh, the whole story is about this elephant that's holding a flower and it's got a speck on it and there's a whole country or group of people living on the speck, right? And what ends up happening, what you'll see in this clip is the mayor of Whoville, which is the town that's on the speck, uh, ends up talking to the elephant and the elephant's trying to convince the mayor of Whoville that he's living on a speck, all right? And he's just not up for that at all. He just does not get that at all because it's so far out of his experience that it just doesn't, it doesn't compute. And it certainly happens at the school here quite a bit. I mean, one of the classic questions that students ask at the school is, who made God? And it's like they just can't get out of their head that there's something that was never made because everything that they see and everything that they know has been made, all right? And it's a bit like that with our own understanding and our own vision. We just kind of think that we see everything clearly and someone comes in and says something different. We go, it just doesn't compute. Anyway, here we go. Hello? <gasps> Hello? Who's there? Um, this is the mayor. The mayor? The mayor? <laughs> I knew it, 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 I knew there was life on this speck. The speck? What speck? Well, um, 
I don't exactly know how to tell you this, but... You're living on a speck. Well, I hate to disagree with you, oh voice from the drain pipe, but I live in Whoville. Well, then, Whoville's a speck. <laughs> right. Okay, seriously, who is this? Is this Bert from accounting? Uh, no. This is Horton. I'm an elephant. Okay. Horton? Fake name. Where are you? Well, from where you're standing, I guess I'm in the sky. Compared to you, I'm enormous, which is saying something, because I've slimmed down quite a bit. I swim. <laughs> Your whole world fits on a flower in my world. Oh, man, this is even pushing it for you, Bert. Don't believe me? Watch what happens when I put you in the shade. This is absolutely impossible. Dark. Light. Dark. Light. Dark light, dark light, dark light, dark light, dark light. Light. Don't you see? We're in the middle of some kind of amazing cosmic convergence. Two vastly different worlds, miraculously crossing paths. Mine blossom! Yours minuscule, yet somehow we've managed to make contact. If you think about it, it's pretty amazing. Is everything okay down there? Ooh. <laughs> I don't know. You tell me. You're the one holding the speck. I'm the one holding this back. I'm the one holding this back. Don't you worry. All right. So, I mean, a nice visual illustration of that whole mechanism happening. Where we're going, uh, where I'm going with this today is we're going to get to Hebrews 4, which actually talks about the significance of God's word and God speaking to us. Because, uh, and the, the relation that this has uh, to what I've just been talking about today is that once we see sin for what it really is, that it's madness and evil intentions in our hearts, it's the absence of any fear of God, it's slavery to various passions, and we'll see the amazing blessing of the word. So I just want to throw a couple of scriptures your way. The first one was from uh, Genesis chapter 6, which is just prior to uh, God flooding the earth and uh, killing most of the people on the earth. He actually makes this statement. Uh, Moses writes it down in Genesis. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. See, this is not... Uh, Moses is not talking about a high-handed view of sin. He's just talking about the dynamic of sin, is that people actually... This is just the way that we act. This is just what we do, all right? The corruption's actually touched everything in us. You can see this also in Psalm 36, verse 1 there, where it says, "'Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart.'" There's no fear of God before his eyes. And this is going to be one of my favourite verses, I think, going into the future. I think it's so uh, instructive is uh, Ecclesiastes 9 verse 3. The hearts of the children of men are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. Isn't that a great phrase? Madness is in their hearts. Is that insanity in a sense in the heart, in the sinful heart, that kind of just carries it away. And it's not a high-handed, I'm choosing to be mad, like... Uh, maybe at some point a mad person chose to be mad, but mad people often tend to just keep being mad without making a choice, don't they? Madness is in their hearts, uh, and after that they go to the dead. And then Titus 3, verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So you can see there, there's a real dynamic there, isn't there, that it's got its own momentum, and it's not this consciously willed, chosen act, all right? might be a bit depressing for you at the moment. I'm hoping not too much, all right? Because we're going to get to the good news in a minute. I just wanted to run through a quote from uh, Dave Powlison because it's just such great stuff. People do not tend to see sin as applying to relatively unconscious problems, to the deep, interesting and bedeviling stuff in our hearts. But God's descriptions of sin often highlight the unconscious aspect. Sin, the desires we pursue, the beliefs we hold, the habits we obey as second nature is intrinsically deceitful. This is what we uh, covered in the project here a number of weeks ago. If we knew we were deceived, we would not be deceived. But we are deceived, unless awakened through God's truth and spirit. Sin is a darkened mind, drunkenness, animal-like instinct and compulsion, madness, slavery, ignorance and stupor. People often think 
that the divine sinner's unconscious removes human responsibility. How can we be culpable for what we did not sit down and choose to do? But the Bible takes the opposite tack. The unconscious and semi-conscious nature of much sin simply testifies to the fact that we are steeped in it. Sinners think, want and act sin like by nature, nurture and practice. We instinctively return evil for evil. All psychological processes are sin kinked. That's a, I think that's incredibly perceptive. And you know what? Here's the end of the bad news. If God does nothing... That is a terrible place to be in, is it not? I mean, I've often said to uh, students and the people that the worst surprise you could ever get is to think that you're a Christian and get to Judgment Day and God goes, I never knew you, I didn't even know who you were. Like to be deceived and end up in a really, really bad place at the end of that is a tragic, tragic thing. That could be one of the greatest tragedies around is to be deceived and not to know it. But you know what's so amazingly good about this, and I'm probably going to start getting a bit more animated because I'm getting to the good news, right? Is that God doesn't leave you there, all right? Like God had the opportunity back in Genesis 6 to pull out and just go, well, stuff you. Like you can just do it on your own. I'm not, I'm not going to say anything else. Be like the, uh, the cranky wife or the upset husband who storms off into another room and doesn't talk anymore. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I'm going to give you the silent treatment. I'm never going to talk to you again. But what does he do? He keeps coming out again and again and he talks. And what happens every time that God talks is a clarion call, which is a loud, clear call, comes out that's true, that cuts through the deceit and the deception and the filthy glasses that we wear where we don't see things right. And this is what's amazing. And this is what's so good about all of you coming to church today, right? Because you get another chance for God to actually say something to you and to speak his word over you that brings clarity in the midst of the confusion, that brings sanity in the midst of the madness and the insanity. Isn't that good? Does anyone feel an amen about that? Is there an amen? It is, isn't it? Isn't that good? Man, like he loves you so much, you've really been irritating a whole bunch of times. And he just keeps talking to you. And he keeps loving you, and he keeps forgiving you, and he keeps bringing clarity to the insanity and the madness that you carry on with, all right? Because I do too. You only have to talk to Ange for about five hundredths of a second, and she'll probably tell you some mad stuff that I go on with. Totally. We all do, all right? And our only hope is that there's a God that keeps talking, and he keeps bringing the truth in the midst of an obscure, messy, blurred, and tragic vision of life. This is good. You guys better get excited. All right? Because we're at the good news now, right? It's worse. Sin's actually probably worse than what a lot of you thought. All right? But you know what that does? That means God's word is even better. And God's better. And he speaks to you. And he cracks through that messiness. We're going to read some of Hebrews, so you can follow it in your Bible or you can follow it on the screen. We're up to Hebrews chapter 4, and my great hope is by the end of this year, the project will have made it to the end of chapter 4 in Hebrews. So the way I see it, that's around about a third, so we'll finish about 2015, I think, in Hebrews. But hopefully uh, you'll really be blessed for it. You remember, uh, those of you who were here last week, I talked about the fact, sorry, the week before, I talked about the fact that God wants to bring us to a point of rest. A rest that starts now, but a rest that finds its completion in heaven. And what you've actually got in the Old Testament is you've got the Israelites come out of Egypt. God brings the Israelites out of Egypt. Moses leads them for a while. He gets cranky when he shouldn't have got cranky, right? He hit the rock instead of speaking to it like God told him to do. And so God says, because you got cranky, which most of us probably would have got cranky before then, because there's about two to three million people who are really irritating following him, and he was leading them, all right? He, uh, God said, well, you're not going uh, into the land of Canaan that I promised to you, all right? And so God raises up Joshua to take over, all right? And so you get this sense in Hebrews that the writer's going, hey, look, Moses kind of tripped over. He didn't make it to where God wanted him to make it, and the people didn't get there either. And then Joshua comes along. You know what happens? Hebrews 4, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And so the writer of the Hebrews is saying, writer to Hebrews, Sorry, the writer of Hebrews is saying Joshua couldn't get it done either. Moses couldn't get it done. Joshua couldn't get it done. Who do you reckon he's hinting at is going to get it done? Yeah, Jesus is going to get it done. He'll get you to a place of rest. Everyone else, not going to make it. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Listen to this. Listen to this beautiful kind of almost an oxymoron. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Like you don't actually get the rest unless you work. Isn't that a, that's a weird, but I mean that's kind of God. He's, he loves to just, just put stuff together. You say, well, how does that work? It doesn't look like rest. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago when I talked about how you get rest, ultimately the writer uh, of the book of Hebrews is saying you get rest by who you trust. That's how you get rest. And that's why the rest can start now. And the completion of the dependence and the trust in its perfection occurs in heaven where we're absolutely closely connected to God. And so uh, the writer of Hebrews here is saying the disobedience that came was because people didn't trust God. And then he goes on to this. Check this analogy out. This is amazing. For the word of God... Now, this is, he's not just talking about what Jesus said. He's talking about the whole of the word of God. Is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I mean, imagine if you came to church today and you, uh, I mean, you're all sitting there and you looked out the front here and there's, there's a sword lying on the, on the floor here. And it's sharp, like you can't even touch, touch the edge of it and it just cuts you. Cuts through your skin. Double-edged. And then it just miraculously just starts hovering. All right? And it just starts slicing and dicing around the place. Now, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty brutal analogy, isn't it? Like at a physical level. But it's really saying the words like that. It's, it just, it's like a, a double-edged sharp sword and it just slices and dices. And, and it, it sounds bad, doesn't it? All right? Just kind of going... Yeah, well, because that's what I wake up in the morning wanting, is someone just to cut me to pieces. All right? But, but it's, that's what it does. It kind of cuts us to pieces, you know? And, and you look at the last part there in verse 12 there, and it says, it, it actually gets right down to the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The actual, the core of your being, where you're making decisions and you're going after things and where you're willing and acting, where that root of all of that is, it gets right down into there. The analogy it uses to describe that is... Uh, getting right down to the joints and the marrow. So you're talking about a really, I mean, if, if, if we get right into the physical side of it, you're talking about a sword that doesn't just cut through the flesh, doesn't just cut down to the bone, but it's so sharp that when it gets to the bone, it doesn't glance off the bone, it cuts through the bone to the marrow. Well, that's, now we're getting down deep, aren't we? All right? That's, that's just detail. That's, that's uh, kind of getting pretty messy. And then he goes on to say, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say this, he goes, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked. This is like the time where you just think, okay, how many dreams have I had about going to school naked, right? Because it's, it's not good, right, to go to school naked. Everyone cool with that? And it wouldn't be good if you've had 500 dreams about going to school naked. We might need to have a bit of a chat. All right, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I wonder whether you've ever done this. There's been lots of times in my life, especially as a younger guy, where I've actually thought, and it's the dumbest thing out, but I've actually thought, I reckon if I do this really quick, that God may not notice. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's going to sneak that one in. You know, if you sneak the sin in quick enough, you should be sweet, right? But the writer of Hebrews here is saying, you don't sneak it in. You never sneak it in. Everything is, is bare. I mean, the, the idea of uh, nakedness, the, the same Greek words used in 2 Corinthians 5 to talk about the soul being without a body. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 37, it talks about a bare kernel of grain. It uses the same word. And in Acts 19, it talks, obviously, about a body that doesn't have any clothing on. That's incredibly vulnerable, isn't it? But this is what the Word does. The Word actually comes in and it slices and dices, and it gets right down to the bone marrow and lays everything bare. You see, you can never do something that God doesn't see, ever. Which is why it's a really good test of your repentance to see if you're prepared to confess to another human being. All right? Now, you can say sorry to God, but somehow when you actually say sorry and you repent and you, and you 
tell someone about one of your failings, someone who's real, all of a sudden the act becomes far more real in itself. Has anyone ever noticed that? It just does. And, and somehow in our head we just kind of think, if we can't see God, he's not real, and so I can just say sorry and everything will be okay. All right? Which would be weird. I mean, if you literally, if God was here today and you had a friend, the last person you'd probably, at a flesh level, would want to repent to would be to God. That's just that's scary. All right? At a flesh level. Now, if you become a Christian, you know there's forgiveness in God. So you want, you want to be going to him first. But the instinct of sin is to cover, all right, and go to the safe place. And uh, ironically, we don't always uh, see God as being dynamically real in the way that we uh, seek uh, forgiveness from him. But what I do want to do, can you just go, I haven't got it on the screen, but can you just go back to Hebrews uh, 4, if you're in Hebrews 4, go back to verse 2, all right, because this is all sounding pretty, pretty heavy maybe. Hebrews 4 verse 2 says this, actually I'll start in verse 1, therefore while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, for... What, has anyone got an ESV? Someone want to yell out what the next two words are for? What is it? Good news. You get that? So all of a sudden you've actually got, like you look at it, you kind of go, oh, okay, well I thought the word was actually going to be really brutal and it was going to be really heavy, but all of a sudden you've actually got, you realise in the context that the writer of Hebrews is going, it's actually good news. Like the way that the word acts is actually good news in your life. Now, your next question needs to be, well, how is getting sliced and diced by a double-edged sword going to be good news for me? Well, you know what the Israelites got wrong? They didn't trust it, did they? So God came with good news for them and they didn't trust it. And so the word comes in, and this is the big idea from Hebrews chapter 4, is that the word comes in with you all of the time and with me all of the time and it divides between trust, faith and unfaith or unbelief. You see that? That's what it does. It comes in, draws a dividing line and splits between faith and unbelief, trust and unbelief. So the big question is, when the word comes into your life, what does it reveal? Because the fight that the writer of Hebrews is talking about that you need to wage war with is getting to the promises of God, the goodness and the, and the good news of God. That's what you've got to fight to get to. If you don't get to that, it's going to be bad. All right? You don't get rest. You don't end up there. And I'm going to get you to work in a sec. So what I want to do is I want to give you three scriptures, three promises out of the Bible, because this is what the writer of Hebrews is really talking about. All right? And we're going to apply three scriptures in terms of the way that the word cuts like a double-edged sword and splits between faith, trust, and unbelief. And I'll do the first one, and then I'm going to read the next ones, and I'll get you to turn to the person next to you and see if you can work out the alternatives. All right? what faith and trust in God would look like and what unbelief would look like. Here we go. First one's this. Beautiful, beautiful verse. Beautiful promises here. I'll read slow. Just meditate on this. Just think about it. Chew it over. Fear not. Why not? For I'm with you. That's why you don't fear. Because God's with you. And it's, it's, it's not always going to be perfect on this planet. But you know what? It's going to be okay if God's with you, isn't it? Even if, even if everything goes bad, it's going to be okay. That's what he's saying. Fear not, for I'm with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Listen to these. I will strengthen you. I will help you. And some of you, I don't know all of your personal situations, but this is the word of God. cuts deep, doesn't it? It gets down deep. I will help you. He's saying he'll help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. So, let's apply it. Faith, trust, unbelief. This scripture here, what does faith look like? What does trust look like? Faith and trust, when this scripture comes forward and cuts deep down to the bone and the marrow, we'll find in someone who's trusting God, that person will relax. That person underneath is just going to be going, God, it's going to be okay. You, you've got it. I don't 
the, the person of faith and trust is, is not going to feel that pressure and that anxiety that they've actually got to make it work. Now, there'd be some stuff that God wants them to do as part of it, but there's not that anxiety and that stress and that pressure that I've got to make it work. So can you see the person who's not trusting in God, maybe what they're saying is they're going, I don't think you are. I don't think you're in my situation. I don't think you are going to help me. I think I need to do it. And it's stressful and it's anxious. But on this side over here, they're going, thank you, God. You're going to come through. You're the the one that's ultimately, um, I can be at peace. I can be like Jesus in the middle of a storm is asleep at the front of the boat. It's, it's going to be okay. And there might be a whole bunch of stuff that needs to happen as well, but at a, at a global level, at a heart level, it's going to be okay. Do you see that? So on the one side, unbelief is kind of going, no, I don't think you're going to do it. See, the word comes in, and maybe even for some of you now, this promise of God comes in and it's dividing between trust and unbelief. And maybe some of you, because isn't this true sometimes in uh, hard situations where you're in a really difficult situation, you're going, I can't see God in this situation, he's not involved in it, and the promise comes in saying, I'll help you, I'll strengthen you, and instantly in your head sometimes you can just say, no, you won't, you haven't. So how can I be confident that you will? And, and it's, not, it's not an argument, it's almost despair really, isn't it? It's just, like, it's just not going to happen, and uh, I don't trust you. Because last time I did, you didn't do what I wanted you to do. And the unbelief comes in. All right? And I'm not getting down on you if that's you, because that's been me. All right? But you just got to... The trick then is, I've got to somehow... God, please help me to get across to the trust side. Because that's a good promise. Like, if you don't live with the reality of this promise, you miss out on just a, a huge big piece of gold bullion, don't you? So, one side unbelief, the other side... Uh, faith and trust. All right, you roughly get the idea. So what, what we're really doing is I want you to have a, a quick talk in a minute and see if you can work out with the person next to you what would faith look like regarding that promise and if the promise malfunctioned because of my heart, what would unbelief look like? What would someone say who heard that promise but was unbelieving? Because that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying the word does. It splits between trust and unbelief. Is everyone cool with that? So we're just going to have a little, this is kind of, it's getting just a tiny little bit workshoppy here. Here's your um, scripture, Matthew 6.33, another great promise. Jesus says, uh, at the end of a uh, bit of a talk on anxiety, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and look out, here comes the promise, and all these things, he's not talking about four bedroom, double lock up garage, ensuite, uh, two SUVs, all right? You know the things he's talking about? Like this is the subsistence economy. He's talking about food, drink, and clothing. That's pretty critical. Agreed? So he's just going, okay, here's the deal. You don't, don't even think mostly about food, drink, and clothing. Think mostly about the kingdom and think mostly about following me. But here's the promise. Here's the promise. And all these things will be added to you. Here's the promise. There's the good news, according to the writer of Hebrews. He would say, that's good news. All right? So can you just have like a 30-second discussion with the person next to you? If that promise that God will provide all of your needs is read and received by someone who's trusting God, what would that look like? And if it was read by someone who was at a place of unbelief and wasn't trusting God, what would that look like? What sort of things would they say? Is everyone cool with that? 30 seconds. Have a quick convo with the person next to you.
Alrighty. How'd you go? Anyone want to throw in? Someone got an idea about how that's how's that received by someone who's trusting in God? Want to throw in? Pardon? Excellent. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's really helpful because you've kind of given us both in a nutshell. You've just gone, okay, but one person's calm. The other person is pretty stressed, right? There's kind of a grasping kind of a, I've got to accumulate and I've got to grab things and hold onto them tightly. And whenever you do that, it's, it's pretty stressful. Yeah. So unfaith or uh, unbelief um, does that. Uh, trust does something totally different and it relaxes, you see. I mean... It's not really the point of my message, but if we really did, how different, I don't know, just a meditation, a bit of a reflective thought, how different would we look if we were really hardcore about this, you know? Because often, I mean, I, I think it, when it comes to having enough money in my bank account, which is probably connected to food and clothing because you usually pay for them, all right, or I'd be in jail, um, As a joke, I've often said to uh, students when we're in shops, we just go, you've either got to pay for it, or if there's a big lineup, you need to be able to run really fast. <laughs> it was a joke, all right? No one's ever... Um, anyway, let's not get into that. Uh, anyway, so that's the deal, you know? I, I, I often think that. I'd, at the moment, I often just think, well, what, what would that look like? I mean, we're pretty... It's not a negative thing because I think God gives us money. It's a priority thing, isn't it? You know, we're pretty good at making sure the nest is feathered pretty well. Um, eh, just a bit of a thought. Not wanting to make it a big heavy thing, but just a bit of a thought. All right, I'm going to give you one more uh, example which I'd love for you to have a quick convo about. Beautiful, beautiful promise from uh, Psalm uh, 1611 or beautiful good news. Listen to this. In your presence... There is fullness of joy. This is an amazing statement. Like, just soak that one up. You think about every moment that you've had in your life where there's been that impulse in you that I've got to get pleasure and I've got to be having a good time. I've got to be enjoying life. And the temptations come along and the temptations come along and they say, this is going to be better. And God's standing there and he's going, you've got your glasses on, you know, you've got your beer goggles on, on again, Right? <laughs> Take your big goggles off and just let me speak to you about what the truth is here. You stay with me, you stay in my presence, fullness of joy. Like not even, I'll make your glass half full. This is like full joy. And then he says, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. All right, here's your task. What does that look like when that truth about the Bible cuts down deep to someone who's trusting God? What does it look like when it cuts down deep to someone who's meeting it with unbelief? 30 seconds. Have a crack. How'd you go? Who's got an idea? Want to throw something in? Someone? Anyone got one? Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. intimacy with God. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a good example. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Yeah. 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 That's good. 
is this easy to believe when you're right in the middle of temptation? Ah, it's, it's not, is it? Because for all money, you're just going, it's not true. I'm not actually going to have fullness of joy by being with him. I'm actually going to have fullness of joy by getting this thing. Because that's the nature of sin, is that it lies and it deceives. But you can see how the person who gets right in the middle of that temptation is going to do the temptation differently if they're responding out of trust and reliance and dependence upon God. Because the temptation still comes, all right? But they just go, oh, it's going to be average. Seriously, that's just average, you know? And I'd encourage you, get your walk with God, get your, your closeness to God and your knowledge of God in a relational way so good that stuff comes along like that and you go, man, really? It's like you're giving me home brand, you know? Like I could go to Wise's and I get home brand corn kernels. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I'm not taking the corn kernels, man. I'm going to Wise's. You know, that's, isn't that what the psalmist is saying here? It's better. It's better. I mean, this is a classic scripture that I reckon all of you should memorize. All right? Because this is going to be a temptation killer and an unbelief killer. All right? This is your AK-47. All right? We're going to blow this thing apart. All right? This is it. Maybe it's not an AK-47 because it's pretty short, but maybe it's a rocket launcher or something. It's going to blow it apart. All right? It's just not even going to work anymore because we're going to kill it. I hope you get the idea here. This is what the writer of Hebrews is saying, and I'm just going to wrap up with a couple of practical tips and then I'm done. We've all got a deep, deep condition that's a big problem, all right? It, it's, it's almost like we've got um, arteries blocked going into our heart, all right? Now, if you went to a cardiologist and, uh, and, and they discovered that and he said, listen, I've got the perfect thing for you. I've got a Wiggles Band-Aid, all right? And I'm just going to stick that over the top of your heart and you're just going to be all sweet. You're just going to go, you're an idiot and I want my money back, all right? Because the truth is, at that point in time, if you've got a serious, serious condition, you're going to say to the surgeon, even though you don't want to do it, you'll say, cut me deep. Open my rib cage up and fix me. And isn't this it with the word? We've got a condition where that, that impairs our sight, our judgment, our decision making, and we ought to be coming to God and saying, just cut me deep with the word. Cut me deep, not with heaviness and conviction, but cut me deep with your promises. Cut me deep. Show me that you care for me. Like from 1 Peter, it says, cast all your anxieties upon God. Why? Because he cares for you. So let the promise hit. Let it cut right down to the bone and the marrow and let it hit trust, not unbelief. See, this is the greatest weapon that you've actually got for your current state of mind and the current state of the way that you see things is actually God speaking to you with clarity. And he's a compassionate surgeon and We'll finish off chapter 4 next week because the next few verses, and I've, I've really... Now, let's read them now, just really quick. Because you need to hear this, right? Because I don't want you to go away and think, oh, that was really full-on, really heavy, right? Listen to this. This is verse 14. 15 and 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Can you hear the tenderness? Oh, that's incredibly tender. And it's this, this irony almost of uh, the, 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 the cutting, double-edged sword that just seems so brutal being wielded by a tender, compassionate God who's just wanting to deal with the problems that we've got and the condition that we've got. When the last thing you want is to put a really sharp weapon in the hand of a psycho. Agreed? But he's not a psycho. He's actually very, very tender. But you've got a problem, I've got a problem, and he needs to deal with it. All right, here we go. All I'm going to give you now is some specific tips because the best thing that you could do coming out of this message is get your face in the Bible and get God speaking to you more and more. All right? If this message doesn't do that for anyone, it's been nice, all right, but probably a bit of a waste of time, okay, because you need to do that because God will break through the clouds for you. So here's some tips for you, practical suggestions. We're, uh, those of you who know what I'm talking about, we're uh, all loaded up with the city and we're just working through the process of how we actually launch it, which is our social networking kind of thing that we're going to be using for the church. 
And I don't know how many people I've spoken to that go, oh, I'm just not a reader. You just go, cool, because when the city starts in about a month or so, there's an audio Bible that's free, right? So if you're not a reader, be a listener, okay? And if you don't read, if you can't read or listen, I don't know what we're going to do. We'll pray for your healing or something. I don't know, <laughs> all right? But it's just easy. I mean, you can just sit there and you just listen to the Bible, all right? If you find reading hard. I hate reading. People give me biographies every now and then, all right? But my own life is boring enough. All right, without having to read other people's lives. I just don't like stories. I just think I'm not good enough at reading. I don't like it enough. Every time I read, I want to get something out of it. So I just read nonfiction all the time. But uh, you'll get the audio Bible in the city. Some of you say, yeah, but reading the Bible is really confusing. Yes, it is. All right, it would be the same for reading any book that was written in another era is that you need to get a good understanding of the era to understand the book. All right, and one of the most helpful commentaries, if you wanted to buy some commentaries, one of the most uh, accessible uh, commentary sets around that goes verse by verse through the Bible is called the Expositor's Bible Commentary. You can buy them hard copy at, um, at Kurong or you can buy it via Logos online. But really accessible but also quite deep as well and not too extensive. So there's not a whole lot of words in there that are written in another language, all right, whereas other commentaries um, do that, all right. And I often use the Expositor's Bible Commentary when I'm doing my devotions, when I'm spending time with God, because I, you, you just hit verses and you're going, what the heck is that? You know, I don't know what that is. So if you can just crack open a commentary, it's based on the NIV version, but we still like it because uh, we use the ESV here. But uh, it's based on the NIV. Even if you, and it's, the books are thick if you buy them in hard copy, but they cover about three books of the Bible at a time. I think there's about 12 volumes. But you can get it on Logos, and if you get Logos, um, Logos is, uh, has got an iPhone and an Android app, and you'll just be a technocrat, all right? The third one there that I use, uh, it's a little bit older English, but Spurgeon's Morning and Evening Devotional, which you can get pretty much anywhere on the net for free, all right? So Presbyterians love it, um, is, uh, is really helpful, all right? He's just got a really high esteem. For, uh, for God's word and for the glory and the majesty of God. I read one of those every morning. Uh, he's actually got a devotional reading for morning and night and it just takes, for me, it takes me to another place uh, in terms of what I'm thinking about. Uh, you can get lots and lots of good books that explain things on Kindle, all right? Or you can just go to Kurong and buy them. Um, you just, it doesn't mean you're less of a person if you read a piece of paper. Um, there's something that I've just loaded up on my uh, iPhone uh, you can get it in a hard copy too if you want it. But John Piper's church has got, uh, he's set up something called uh, fighter verses, which are memory verses, all right? Now, you can have your phone and have a Bible on your phone and look at your Bible whenever you want, right? But the truth is that uh, temptations come up all over the place and you just better have a six-shooter sitting in your back pocket loaded with the, uh, the safety off, all right? So that you can just... Let fly, all right? You better have, I think, Psalm 1611. It's just in your presence is fullness of joy because by the time you go to bed tonight, there'll be a temptation to do something that seems fun that's probably not going to be good, all right? So you better have that one in, uh, in the magazine, all right? And so what they do is that they actually um, do one verse a week and there's a five-year rotation. You can get an, an iPhone app and an Android app, as far as I'm aware, and an iPad app. You can get onto the uh, Fighter Versus website and you can get it all for free. All right, there you go, Presbyterians. You get it all for free, okay? And not only that, but the verse that you're learning for that week online, if you get onto it on the computer, it's actually got a full devotional on the verse that you're, that you're memorizing, right? On the apps, you can set it up as your lock screen. You can set up little quizzes. You tick it off when you memorize. So if you're one of these person that likes to have a, a list and you tick it off and cross it or whatever, when you have, you can do all that sort of stuff, right? You can admin yourself out if that's what you want to do, all right? On top of that, I've been using this um, uh, Desiring God app, which is John Piper's thing, where uh, they put out a devotional. Um, it's called, uh, what is it called? Solid Joys, it's called. Um, and you can get that one. I, I think it would probably be on Android as well. And it just gives you a little excerpt, which is all about the promises of God and trusting in God's grace that he's going to provide for the day that hasn't happened yet. All right? And you can read that. I've been reading that, and that's been pretty inspirational. The last one's this, and that's the... Uh, I've just started doing this with my kids, and unfortunately, this one's only on iPads, but there's this thing called the New City Catechism, which just rocks, all right? It would be a good thing for you guys to learn 
Yeah, it'll be good to learn a catechism. You guys, what the heck is a catechism, right? A catechism is just a series of questions, answers, scriptures next to it, and even some prayers that you can say. So you learn the truths of the faith, okay? So this is really, really cool, right? So what you can do, I'm doing this with my kids at the moment because they've got a kid's version of it in the same app and an adult version, right? And what you've got is you've got a, a little user button down the bottom there and I've set up four different users for my four sons and we're going through the questions and Geordie's up to about 11 at the moment so he knows the first 11 questions. We read the question, oh sorry the answers. We read the question, he uh, answers it. There's a scripture there as you can see on the right that relates to the uh, truth that you just learned and then if you click on P, strangely enough that means prayer and it'll have a prayer that, that comes up that you can read together and uh, kind of pray to God. What is so cool about this is uh, this first question here, what is our only hope in life and in death? The answer is that we're not our own, but we belong to God. My first, my oldest three boys, they all know it, right? And the coolest thing last night is my uh, third son down, Lucas, who just turned five yesterday. He's sitting, I was in the kitchen and all the boys are in the, uh, in the TV room and Ange goes, listen to Lukey, listen to Lukey. And I'm just going, right, eh? so I just... I got drummers hearing, so I went up close to uh, where the uh, opening was for the door. And you know what? My five-year-old boy is teaching my three-year-old boy this question. He's going, Joel, what is there only hope in life and in death? <laughs> All right? <laughs> and uh, Joel, says, uh, uh, right? he goes, no, Joel. And he took about five minutes doing it, right? And in the end, Joel gets it. And Joel goes, that I'm not my own, that I belong to God. I'm just going, isn't that a cool truth for your kids to have? All right? That's kind of like a bedrock kind of truth for your kids. If they actually get the idea that they don't belong to themselves but they belong to God, that's a pretty good start, all right? Because they're going to do life differently if they actually understand that and believe that. So, I was going to do something radical at the end of this. And I was going to, you're not going to do it because we never do this stuff and you guys will probably go all quiet as church mice, but... Has anyone got any questions? Like, have you got any practical questions or struggles? Like, what do you, I don't know, I'm not the answer to very much, but uh, I might know something about some answer that might help. Has anyone got anything about, how do you practically read the Bible, what tools do you use, how do you do it? One of these weird things, isn't it? You know, Christians kind of always talking about, oh, you should read the Bible, but no one ever talks that much about what you actually do when you do it. Tell you, I knew this would happen. No questions? Uh, you could lodge a formal complaint, but we prefer it in writing. I might, uh, I might pray. Can you guys, what would be good? Now, once I'm finished praying is, uh, if you love God and God said something communicated to you about the fact you just need to read the Bible and get his truth more, can you just find someone, or just turn to someone next to you once I'm finished praying and make some sort of commitment about I don't know, if there's something that you need to do, just commit to them that you're going to do it. It might even be just another five minutes reading the Bible. It might be that you've got to get a Bible app on your phone so that when you're sitting down somewhere for five minutes, you can hit it up instead of only doing it for 20 minutes in the morning. Is that cool? I'm not telling you what to do in terms of what you've actually got to commit to, but just... James kind of says that if you hear the word of God and you walk away and don't do anything, you just deceive yourself, all right? Which would kind of be the opposite of what I'm trying to help you with, <laughs> all right? So if you could think of some, something you can do, that would be good. I'll pray. God, thank you so much that you speak with clarity and with truth. Thanks, God, I'm just so appreciative to you that you didn't leave us in the insanity and the madness of our hearts but you, you spoke to us and you continue to speak to us. And God, I just pray that uh, by your Holy Spirit that uh, you just speak to people now about what you'd like them to do, what they need to do, God. And it's not what they should do. Your promises are not a should. Your promises are an invitation. Your, your promises are an invitation to a banquet. It's an invitation to stop feasting on white bread and go to a banquet. God, I pray that everyone who loves you here today, that the next seven days will be really, really good days where your promises meet with trust and faith, Lord, and not unbelief.
And I pray, Lord, that in the midst of stress and pressure, that they would just look different. God, I'm not even praying that you take all the stress and the pressure away, but I just pray that you help us to be different in the midst of that because your promises meet with, with trust and belief. And God, thank you in advance for the peace and the rest at a deep soul level that you bring when we lean heavily upon you. And thanks for promising to help us so much. Amen.